You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I got real good news. If you're an Emory fan and you live on the West Coast, you can come see us soon. We're coming in June. Uh, that's my band, Emory. Lest you think all we do on this podcast is just talk about random subjects that interest me, which is true. I will want to remind people from time to time that I do music for a living and I play in a band called Emory and we're good. We're really good. If you've never heard us, it's really, really good. Anyway, we're doing some concerts. We have some gigs lined up and we have, we're going to be in Seattle on June 1st, Portland on June 3rd, Sacramento on June 5th, San Diego on June 6th, Pomona, California on June 7th, Phoenix, Arizona on June 8th. And then we're coming to San, uh, El Paso, Texas, which we haven't been t- played in since 2004, and the great news on that is people already started buying tickets pretty well for that one, which I am uh, very pleased. Anyway, get your tickets for these. You can go to emorymusic.com uh, to get them. So let me tell you about the show today. The show today, I have a guest. His name is Samuel Harrington, Dr. Samuel Harrington, and uh, he's a guy who's a gastroenterologist for 30 years in Washington, D.C., He's got a lot of experience uh, with hospice care, palliative care, end of life kind of stuff like that. He was a uh, trustee on a board member. He was a, he was a trustee on the board of Sibley Memorial Hospital and a member of the Johns Hopkins Health System and uh, the former hospice care of D.C. So he knows what he's talking about here. And as, as you guys know, uh, my mom died last year, and we've had I've had some other losses in my family and deaths uh, issues. I've just really never spent that much time thinking about whatsoever because I'm young. I'm, I'm young, so I just never crossed my mind to be honest. And now I think about it, and the weirdest thing is I kind of enjoy thinking about it. It doesn't make me panicked. It's not the worst thing in the world, I, but it, I can see it more now as this inevitable thing that's going to happen no matter what. And I kind of, I kind of take some amount of challenge to understand it or ponder it or think about it. It feels healthy to me to think about right now. Anyway, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to him. He has a new book that's out now, and it's called At Peace, and it's about end of life. Let me tell you what the subtitle is here. I had it right down here. The subtitle is Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. I think it's a very interesting topic. People are super filled with biases and avoidance of thinking about these things, and it's pretty hard to make decisions, and people are bad with numbers, and people are very emotionally guided. And uh, So I think thinking about these things in the calm times before you get to end of life or your loved ones do is quite interesting and seems to be really, really valuable, although I had not done it much before. So I thought I'd share a conversation with him, with you guys, and see what I could learn along the way. So you can go to his website if you're interested any more than that, samharrington.com. And again, the book is called At Peace. And so hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's do it. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's met Carter. Yeah! How about that idea of having grandkids? I guess I'm just jumping off from a weird point here, but just the notion of having grandkids... Uh, how has that prob- impacted your thinking on, on some of these matters and, 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 you know, thinking about death and planning for death and stuff like that? Has that been any influence on it? It's influenced it, but not in a, in a way, not in a giant way. Um, my father uh, was alive at age 88, and I argued to keep him alive by doing a procedure on his aortic aneurysm and subsequently, over the next five years, he met uh, 12 great-grandchildren. Oh, my so, gosh. So uh, that would be a goal, but uh, I'm not entitled to that, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> to, to but, a goal for you to get into the grand, great-grandchildren territory. Uh, just to have a long, healthy life mm-hmm. like everybody else wants, and uh, I'm enjoying my grandchildren. 
and I would like to be admired by my grandchildren and admired by my great-grandchildren, not that they'll remember me should I be so lucky as to have any, and then, uh, and then I will leave that as my legacy. That is, this, this is just such an interesting conversation to me that it's just, I can't even really figure out exactly where I wanted to, be, to begin. But I have lots of questions and thoughts for you, and I'm really looking forward to gaining some of your experience just through a conversation. And I think that's what's so beautiful about these podcasts, is I can talk to somebody about something I've thought a good bit about, but have very little experience with. And I hope to understand it better and feel more confident going forward. And and so with the listeners, but your book's called At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. Right. Um, and so the you come from, you know, you're a doctor and you have a medical background and you're advising people directly. But before we even get into that specifically, is there some background philosophy and underpinning of this and just thinking about death itself and the, just the whole philosophy of, of, of is it good to live and why should people live and what does it mean to, th- you know, like the very underpinnings of this, does that, is there any roots there that are philosophical for you? Or uh, Well, no. <laughs> uh, the book is not philosophical mm-hmm. in any way. It's completely practical, mm-hmm. although it does come out of uh, a basis in literature. I mean, the idea that uh, one can get an understanding of the human condition through a variety of approaches, religion, literature, science, and I come at it from the scientific approach. My father came at it from the literary approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea, and, and in the book title, that the operative component is a, a choosing a good death after a long life, because I really focus the book on elderly patients mm-hmm. where we can make, I think, an improvement in the quality of their death. And that is the outgrowth, that concept is the outgrowth of my practical experience as a physician where I, I witnessed two or three changes over the 35 years of my uh, practice and training. I witnessed medicine change from what I would describe as a healing art, idealistically speaking, to a commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. I witnessed an explosion of technology that we had to use because if you invest in it, it's there. People have a tendency to use it. And I also witnessed my parents age and dwindle and die. And as a result, uh, I saw a disconnect between what I was doing to patients in a hospital Mm -hmm. uh, as a super subspecialist. I was a gastroenterologist and what my parents wanted done for them at home. And that disconnect between technology, commercial enterprise, and what my parents wanted uh, caused me to want to write this book. Mm-hmm. And, and in, fe- in effect, prevent people, or not prevent them, help them avoid a medicalized death mm-hmm. if they wanted to. If, and, but I, what I mean by medicalized death is a, a death in a hospital, in an intensive care unit, when there's really no practical hope of coming away from that uh, better or even indeed alive. Mm-hmm. And um, those, the people who were in that circumstance frequently didn't think that that would be the outcome. Mm-hmm. And my book is about helping them foresee that. Yes. And how did we get into that predicament where that's the way we've handled it and what was the taboo on the, and the biases against it and uh, things like that. So, but there's no, you know, there's no necessarily, well, we're making the basic assumption that living is good and we want to live and thrive and be happy and, and maximize. Uh, yeah, what's the, what's, what's the premise, though? Are we trying to maximize health or happiness? Or is there a difference in that? Well, you know, health itself is now considered a virtue, and whereas we should consider it a gift. So we all, I mean, we have been inundated with images throughout our lives, your life and mine, of youth and health and vigor. And uh, so we, we sort of ignore the aging process. We ignore the fact that everybody will ultimately die. Right. And we uh, are, as I say, manipulated in a sense by the media into thinking that uh, we're just on the cusp of giant breakthroughs uh, that will, in fact, cure every chronic mm-hmm. illness that we have. 
And the, uh, there are, of course, many giant steps being made, but giant steps lead to incremental progress. And the cures for the diseases that uh, plague the elderly mm -hmm. uh, still are way off on the horizon, no matter what people claim. You know, we say we're moving forward, and indeed we are, but it's small steps rather than the concept of an instantaneous mm -hmm. cure. Mm -hmm. But it seems like the fundamental thing, the what, what, why this area gets so weird is that, and media and advertising and industry all capitalize on this, uh, is just the, the, the idea that people fundamentally don't want to face the, what you just said there, which is that you, the death is inevitable and health is, is a gift, and then death's coming either way. So the idea of not facing it or never – it's like this weird thing like a, a, like in sports where you're never supposed to give up, not into the fourth quarter, not even when – you know there's no hope of you winning the game and you're out there. And I admire that quality in a quarterback. I think Russell Wilson's that way. I, he, I don't think he ever believes he could lose a football game even when there's just no mathematical way he can win. But that seems like a silly quality in a lot of ways, and it seems like a very tragic quality when it comes to – looking at a thing like death like it's hard for people to shift the mode into thinking how to die well that's people because that means you're admitting it and having to dwell on it and process the fact that you're going to die i think that just people just don't want to do that exactly nobody wants to die uh i don't want to die my father didn't want to die but at some point we have to take a practical look at it and the football analogy isn't bad but it does but it fails at one point, ultimately, with one second to go, people will get out on the field and shake hands. And mm -hmm. uh, with one second to go, some patients will say, give me more treatment, mm -hmm. or some family members will say that for yes. them. Or, and what I'm trying to do is help them, since that treatment is A, futile, and B, possibly painful, mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to get them to avoid that. Mm -hmm. If... I mean, if they see my point of view, I'm not trying to make people, uh, you know, I, they don't, nobody has to agree with me, but I hope that I can uh, alter some thinking. Um, the, uh, the attributes, you know, I, I'm very, um, uh, I, I mentioned uh, the attributes of a good death, or I'm about to mention that in the context of your, of your saying, how do we, of my describing a medicalized death before. And there are five attributes of a good death that I address in the book, uh, although I actually address more, but I condense it to five for, the, uh, for a talk like this. The most important attribute is control. The second most important attribute is comfort, meaning the absence of pain. Mm -hmm. The third is closure meaning that we have a chance to reconcile with our family and friends. Uh, the fourth is affirmation, meaning we are appreciated for who we were, our values are appreciated. And the fifth is trust, meaning we're in a comfortable environment where, um, and our caregiver, we, we trust our caregivers, we appreciate them. Well, if you were to, f those are well studied and that's uh, and written about in several major uh, important academic papers. And if you were to flip all of those definitions and turn control into helplessness and comfort into pain and closure into isolation, uh, affirmation into denial and trust into, let's say, frustration. Well, that describes death in a hospital intensive care unit, and um, mm. most people don't want that. If it, it, most people wouldn't want that if they knew that was the outcome, the expected outcome. So, but it's so in our culture, though, we do lionize, if that's the right use of that word, th qualities like uh, he's a fighter or she never gave, gives up or something. But that doesn't mean you should plunge headlong into suffering and pain for things that you, you would say are futile, basically. Correct. And then you give up control and then you, you know. And, so. and we, do, we do lionize the people who sort of reach for the gold ring and win. Those, mm -hmm. those very few people who do get an extended uh, life from a new cancer treatment or a fortunate cancer treatment are the ones who have heart surgery uh, against all odds and then survive and come back. 
And we do lionize them, as you say, but we also immediately forget the dozens of people mm -hmm. who didn't, uh, who tried that and didn't make it. And uh, we ignore the fact that many of them went through a lot to um, uh, only ultimately to die in a, a medicalized circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, well, and, and, and we're witnessing right now, in a sense, um, one of the first families of the United States going through this with the Bushes, Barbara Bush, who was uh, died last week, went into, mm -hmm. uh, said she declined to go to the hospital one last time and died two days later. And her husband is now in the hospital with what's called sepsis, which we can get back to at another time. Well, these, you know, we revere them and I, I admire them as people and as uh, politicians and as examples. And uh, yet not everybody's made of that kind of uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, the, and many people don't choose that course. Mm -hmm. uh, let me talk about my father for a minute because he was... Uh, the, the source, he's the central focus of my book. Um, and he was like uh, George Bush Sr., a war veteran, and he landed on islets in, uh, in the Pacific during the war. So it's not that he wasn't tough. It's just that uh, he had a different perspective on the end of life at this point. Mm -hmm. And when my father was 88, and this is now about eight years ago, he, uh, he decided, we were talking about what, treating what's called an aortic aneurysm in his abdomen. He had a ballooned blood vessel, and if that ruptures in an 88-year-old man, it's curtains that the, he won't survive emergency surgery uh, or would be exceedingly rare. So the treatment is to have preemptive surgery. But uh, it's a giant operation. And uh, the likelihood was he'd be in the hospital for a couple of weeks, maybe go to a nursing home to convalesce. And I thought that that kind of approach threatened his independent lifestyle. He was living alone. He was living in an apartment. Uh, he was completely independent. And if he spent three weeks or th uh, in a nursing home, he probably would have had to come home in a wheelchair and, you know, it would take a long convalescence, maybe never get back to his independent lifestyle. So uh, I had offered him an alternative, a kind of giant cardiac catheterization where um, stents would be put into his aortic aneurysm to strengthen it. And he'd probably live for three to five years without a problem if that went successfully, and it almost always does. And he looked at me, and he sort of furrowed his brow. He pointed his finger. This is a visual aid. I'm pointing <laughs> my finger. And he said, you know, Sam... Why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go? And I was kind of taken aback. But that was his vision. He had a vision of how he would die, which would be he would decline emergency surgery for a ruptured aneurysm, and he would take palliative pain medication, mm -hmm. and he would pass away within hours or a day at the most. And um, I was, as I say, taken aback, but I also realized that even though this was naive on his part, because you can't control when an aneurysm is going to rupture, mm -hmm. you can predict a high risk, but you can't control it. Um, I, I understood him to be saying he wanted to die quickly and decisively mm -hmm. and without a prolonged hospitalization. And my sisters and I used that uh, when we were to make other decisions for him later in life mm -hmm. and later in his court. Uh, course, his illness course, and uh, it was very informative. And I, I feel that expressing a vision like that can be very useful to a family. And um, it's just a, simply a different vision than George Bush Sr. has. And I, there's, right. neither, there's no right or wrong, no, but yeah, you yeah, have right. to honor either one. Yeah, I think there's, there shouldn't be judgment. And I don't even know if there is. It's just people haven't thought about it until confronted with it. And then they, you know, just the, it's like the thing where if you have been thinking about it and considered it and pondered it, you're probably likely to make better decisions, but people avoid it so hard that when it's time, there's nothing, you know, is it, uh, 
you can't fault the family members because they want the person to survive, but do you find that they're often at odds with what the patient wants? The family members are, are pushy. Like how, you know, how, how do you deal with that? Seeing, oh, I think, you know, yeah. what does that, I think that, that, that how does that typically go? I'm sorry. I, just, I mean, it's like statistically, is it often this one way? And it's, you know, how do you see that with people being at odds with what they want for their dad? I think it's probably about 50% of families are together on the subject, and that's partly because they've worked on it, and 50% of families are not, and struggle at the end to try and get everybody on board in the same uh, position. The, so in my case, I have three sisters, and we did, in fact, agree with how we were generally going to treat my father, which is, was quite passively, if something came up, we would decide if it would, if he needed treatment to be comfortable. Yes, of course, we would engage in that. But if uh, the treatment would, would not prolong his life and improve the quality of his life at the same time, then we would be less interested in mm -hmm. that. And we had to be aware, based on his vision, that if an opportunity came up where we could decline treatment and, <clears throat> and let him pass away quickly, we were to seize that. Um, so that we were all in agreement ultimately. I mean, we worked that out. And by the time we, he was closing in on his last couple of years, we were in agreement. Now, there will be families where somebody uh, disagrees with that, doesn't want to let the patient go, doesn't want to let their loved one go. Uh, and that causes friction and problems in the hospital and usually ends up with more treatment than the rest of the family wants or the patient wants. Mm -hmm. So if there's, a, if there's an outlier family member who says, doctor, I want you to do this, most doctors will unfortunately or understandably uh, take the conservative course and do right. the treatment uh, because it is not in their interest to get in the middle of a family fight mm -hmm. over things. Uh, especially when it comes to saying, no, we're going to let your loved one pass away. Yeah, it's got to be hard, even if there's just like one brother, like say the dad is saying, yeah, I'm ready to go, I think. But maybe you don't have a ton of, maybe you think, well, he's kind of lost his mind. He's too old to make those decisions. It's better off for, and then some of the other family members are saying, I think maybe we should let him go. But there's, you know, one brother saying, no, no, if there's a chance to save dad, we got to try. Is there a chance? Is it one in a million? I don't care. You know, and then that right. that sounds it doesn't sound bad. That that sounds. It, know, it sounds hopeful. it sounds loving, but yeah. it may or may not be, and right. it, and it's it's hard to see through the motives of these things. Um, but I'll also paint a picture of a family member who wanted to be in the intensive care unit. Suppose somebody said, "I want to live. Uh, I want my life prolonged at all costs. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what I have to go through. I want you to keep trying." Well, there will also be family members who who look at the intensive care unit whose body is bloated, excess fluid, whose face is taped with, uh, to hold the breathing tube in the mouth, and they have their eyes are taped shut mm -hmm. with, uh, with um, ointment on their eyes to protect the eyelids and the corneas, and they've got IVs in every arm and leg. And uh, there will be family members who say, we've got to stop. Look yeah. how what we're doing. This is terrible. And so... It, it, you know, it's better to, that under any circumstances, it's better that the entire family agrees mm -hmm. uh, because what we want to do for patients at the end of a long life is to do what they wanted to do for themselves. Mm. We, when we are speaking for another pa for our loved one, we have to use what's called substitute, substituted judgment. We can't do what we want or what we want for them. We have to do what we think they wanted us to do for them. But even that gets real squirrely because do you think, is it maybe, I mean, is there the case where what they would have wanted as, you know, in their life or what they may be frantically arriving or in senility arriving at weird conclusions now? Even that yeah. is, a, is a question, right? Yes. And everybody deserves the right to change their mind right. uh, as, uh, as we all do as we go through an illness and we, our emotions rise and fall with the success or, or failure of treatment. We will, we will want more. We will want to do, uh, we, we will change our minds and we have to respect that. But when family members are deciding for their loved one, we have to act 
in in what we understand to have been their last appropriate wish uh, and um, uh, indication of what they want to be done, and that's how we get we sometimes get stuck if we haven't had a good conversation or we don't understand the vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and a vision doesn't have to be something. Uh, you know, my father's comment popped out. It, it wasn't. We'd talked earlier about whether he, when we were writing his advance directive, the written um, living will where it says, oh, I I do or don't want to be on a ventilator, I do or don't want a feeding tube, I do or don't want hemodialysis, that kind of thing. Uh, Visions just kind of pop out. And uh, I I was once asked by an interviewer what my vision was. And I said, "I, I didn't, I don't have a vision like my father had. And then I realized that I had because I had told my kids uh, as they were teenagers uh, and we'd be sitting at the table and we'd talk, we were talking about aunt so-and-so who'd passed away or some, somebody's mother. And we, and I'd say, look, when I get into that position, when I get old and frail and tired, I just want you to put a tray in front of me three times a day, but don't put a spoon to my mouth and don't put a straw to my lips. Well, I mean, that is a clue. Even if you don't fully understand it, that's a clue toward what what you really think deep down to your intuitions, at least. Correct. Yeah. So they can, they can uh, sort of use that as a starting point. Now they're grown up. As I said, I've got grandchildren and one of my daughters is a surgeon and one of my daughters is a neonatologist. So um, they'll know a lot about medicine Mm -hmm. when I, when I will have forgotten a lot and they Mm -hmm. will be making the decisions uh, using substituted judgment for me, and hopefully um, I won't have to use substituted judgment for very long, or they won't have to. So let's uh, tell me then what the culpability or responsibility the biz. What did you call the 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 medical field being? It was idealistic, and now it's oh, commercial commercial enterprise. Yeah, right, right. Well, um, there are two imperatives in American medicine, the American healthcare system. One is to take care of patients, and the second is to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And these are frequently in conflict, or at least they're conflicting imperatives. And, and it is easier when taking care, to take care of a patient, it is easier to make money uh, by doing something. It is easier to move the patient through the system than to stop and have a long uh, discussion that's not very well compensated as to about the pros and cons of treatments. Mm-hmm. So we tend, uh, there, there's a real momentum to treatment in the American culture. There's a concept that doing more is better, that, right. and we rarely think about the option of doing nothing. And, uh, and in fact, doing more makes the system more money, even if the doctor doesn't take it away. Uh, the hospitals make money at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as again, again, it as feels say, hopeful. It's like, well, there's, doctor, there's got to be something. And he goes, well, there is this one thing, <laughs> you know. We can always try this, uh, and, that co- and that sets things back into motion. Um, so that's how com- the commercial enterprise aspect of it comes in, where we, we have the, this huge system that is ready to take care of acute problems, but it is not really ready to take care of chronic illnesses mm-hmm. that plague the elderly. So in, in the book, I, I have a couple of chapters pointing out, trying to help people understand illness. What, what is it about? What is, uh, let's not make it complicated talking about illness. Let's make it as simple as possible. And to simplify it, I point out that there are six illnesses that are responsible for 90% of deaths in patients over the age of 65, according to the CDC statistics. And those six illnesses, I'll try and remember them in order of importance. Mm -hmm. Congestive heart failure kills the most uh, people over the age of 65, then cancer, then lung disease, then uh, stroke, then diabetes and dementia. So those six illnesses account for 90% of deaths. And if we can see ourselves fitting into one of those categories, and if we can see how uh, mm. some uh, end might come to pass, like pneumonia in uh, heart failure or chronic lung disease or an infection in cancer and diabetes or 
unfortunately, cancer can cause death in so many ways, it's mm-hmm. hard to qualify. But uh, dementia death would be by pneumonias or falling down, having uh, tr- trauma or poisoning oneself because they take the wrong medicine or eat something that's not food. Uh, so if we can visualize something in that regard, then uh, we can communicate that about that or communicate about that with our families. So uh, it, the, my book really deals with the idea that at some point, um, if you want to die at home, you have to say no to hospitalization. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a one-sentence summary. I hadn't I hadn't done a lot of thinking on the dementia one. That's Alzheimer's dementia. I guess that's a whole yeah. category. But I mean, that's just disturbing that you say it's stuff like poisoning or trauma. Is that are those actually? I mean, what what is the natural way to go from dementia? What, well, de- people who are demented become uh, progressively disoriented, disorganized. They, some of them do die from uh, wandering into the street, wandering downstairs, falling, hurting themselves, uh, misunderstanding where they are. Uh, so trauma is a category for them. Another is the fact that they're swallowing. Demented patients ultimately don't swallow well. So like so many other chronic, advanced chronic illnesses, they get pneumonias from choking on food. And uh, they also end up, severely demented patients end up in uh, hospital beds and get bed sores, Mm -hmm. uh, no matter how hard we work to avoid that, and infections. So uh, pneumonia, bladder infections, trauma, uh, poisoning, ingestion, taking the wrong medications or taking all their medications, you know, we have to take care of demented patients to protect them from themselves. Right. Well, it, does that one not even bring up more of the, and, and how do you deal with the, the other end of this, which would actually be euthanasia or selective suicide and, and those kinds of topics? Is that something that you speak on, have opinions on? Well, I do, um, I do have opinions on it, and I touch on that in, in my book. It's called Medical Aid in Dying mm-hmm. Now. It used to be Physician-Assisted Suicide. Uh, euthanasia is actively putting people, uh, uh, actively taking measures to kill people, mm-hmm. which we don't allow in this country under any circumstances. But medical aid in dying is allowed in the state of Washington. Uh, Oregon is the most mature state with that. And I think that there are five other states and the District of Columbia that allow medical aid in dying. Tell me what's the difference in that and the physician well, Medical assistant. aid in dying is when people... Uh, uh, go to a doctor, they have, are certified as having less than six months to live based on a s- diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Of course, they can be of any age, uh, but if they have less than six months to live based on brain cancer or lung cancer or, or Parkinson's disease or some other uh, illness, then two doctors can certify that and two doctors can certify that they are not mentally unstable then a doctor can prescribe a medication or a series of a dosage of medication, um, a tranquilizer and a, a something and a nar- narcotic that will suppress breathing, and instruct the patient on how to take it. The patient then goes home and after a two-week cooling off period, can fill the prescription and use the medication when they want. And uh, but they have to be mentally alert and mentally sound when they take the medication mm-hmm. and they have to be physically able to give administer the medication to themselves nobody I else see. can do it very so, interesting there so the couple of points that i that i would like to make about that one is from a intellectual point of view as a uh, from an intellectual point of view as a scientist i would say okay i can live with that um, i agree with that people Patient autonomy dictates that patients should have that choice if they're mentally competent. Uh, But from a professional point of view as a physician, I'm ambivalent about it because, and I'm glad that I never had to face this in my own decision-making as a professional, because I think that there is, uh, it's a little, I took an oath to to do no harm, Mm -hmm. and I feel that that is, uh, 
getting very close to the bone uh, when I, if, I, if I give a person a toxic dose of medication and advise them how to use it. And on a very personal level, if my father, who passed away in Wisconsin and did not have access to this, but if he had access to this and if he had requested it and he did not, then I would have felt cheated out of some quality time if he was smart enough and healthy enough to admit or administer ah, this to ooh, himself. That is such an ethical dilemma, really, when you think about it. Because on one hand, yeah, the fir- it seems like it was carefully constructed. This isn't like some loophole in, in or anything like that. This seems like right. pretty intellectually well-reasoned uh, attempt to get in the middle of something there. And it focuses on the idea that the person is of sound mind and consent. And there's no, they're, you know, both of those protections of two doctors give it, give the situation where there's, there's no funny business and the person's fully in control and, and consenting. But that leaves out the fact that they, you know, there are people that are in worse off need of such thing that can't give the consent, which is unfortunate. It leaves out that whole group of people that that are really suffering that can't do anything about it because they've passed that point. That's right. So that's really weird. And then, yeah, if you're of sound mind, you don't, I mean, you can at least live one more day and talk to your kids. You can, you know, do one more thing, have one more idea, have one more, you know, that's, that's the hard part about that too. It's hard to get, I'd like to, I I was studying up on this for a bit because I wanted to know a little bit more before I went out to, I did a book signing uh, out in uh, Seattle a couple of months ago and I wanted to know a little bit more about this. And I, in Oregon in 2016, only 204 people applied for a medical aid in dying. Mm -hmm. uh, And of of that, 133 took the medication. So about 65% of people who uh, take uh, actually use it. Mm -hmm. So 35% of people remain ambivalent about it or something. I'm not sure why they didn't take it, but that's their business. I'm not judging that. But I think that sends a message about ambivalence. And the other statistic that I think is interesting is that in none of the states, uh, how's this going to come out? Of all the people who are have medical aid and dying available to them, of all the states and all the deaths recorded in those states, less than zero point. Five percent of deaths relate to medical aid in dying. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about a giant no. problem or a giant solution. It's a very small group of people who fo- who apply for it and follow through with mm-hmm. it. Well, it's a very narrow set of circumstances when you stack yep. up the, all those things, of course. But it seems very. I, I mean, I'm very much logically in favor of those kinds of things, and I, I lean way naturally towards. Let's just get this over with, kind of thing. That's my. That's just complete intuition. That's not from real, from personal experience with it. That's or not your like vision. That. That's you're, <laughs> you're not sharing a vision. Yeah, yeah, and I'm not saying unplug me as soon as you can either. I just, you know, the, I I do think that suffering, the suffering is ultimately more. Suffering seems more significant to me than death. Basically, in the in the long term, especially given that death's inevitable, the amount of suffering that one does in their life is pretty much the most important metric. If you would want to know, like right. amount of in things you enjoyed and certain happinesses and accomplishments, you'd want all those in a life. But if there's one thing you could say about a life lived, the least amount of suffering in it would probably be the first thing you'd select for. If it, from a blank slate, I would think. Well, well, and at the end of life, I would select the least amount of suffering uh, for ending it, I think, mm-hmm. is how I would look at it. And with respect to what I said about my father and medical aid in dying, my perspective would have been quite different if he was suffering from a painful mm-hmm. condition. True. Then <clears throat> my sympathies would have changed in some uh, way. I haven't worked that through, and I'm glad I didn't have to. But if, if a person is suffering... I think that um, most doctors and most family members want to do something to relieve that. So, mm. um, but again, there's physical pain and there's emotional pain, and it's not easy 
to divide them up sometimes or separate them. So I think we have to keep in mind that too. But that's just part of the equation. Is there one more side to that? Uh, what did you call the medically? The medical aid in dying. Medical aid in dying. Okay. Is there another side to that, like other things that are prohibited by law, you know, drugs, prostitution, whatever, where there's a bunch of people looking up how to self-administer suicide and doing that? That would be a real interesting statistic. Like, are there old people and families that are trying to pull it off without medical intervention? Because that would really factor into how I viewed the legality of it. Like, for instance, um, abortions that happen when it's not legal, you know, on the black right. market. I mean, that's that's Is a real a issue to consider. Yeah. I'm not. I don't know of one. I haven't looked into it. Uh, we we you probably remember the stories about Dr. Kevorkian, mm -hmm. who was in fact <clears throat> sort of helping people self-administer. Um, lethal doses of things. He was putting it through the vein, so it was, quote, guaranteed to um, be effective. He'd put in the IV and hook them up, and they'd press a, a, a button that would let down the first the Valium or some mm -hmm. sedative, then a breathing, uh, something, for a narcotic, and then a potassium and a insulin or something, some combination of those things uh, that would guarantee death. Well, I don't know who's studying up on that. I, I hope that the, the, medic, the caught people who are fighting for medical aid and dying have dampened that uh, black market, but uh, I haven't looked into that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things occur to me now at this stage I am in life. I, I can almost say for sure that I thought about death almost zero my entire life and then i've had a bunch of people in my family and stuff die in the last just few years, just just the last few years uh my wife's father died uh i lost three grandparents and then my mom died uh, uh just out of nowhere from a heart attack out of the blue this year and then we just put our dog down recently mm -hmm. and all those things are so i mean I'm not even here to say it's been the worst thing in the world. It's just been so, it's like a whole new world of things to think about. And I think about them a lot. And it's not right. the most depressing thing either. It's, it's all of that's a shocking, it sounds weird, but all that's shockingly less depressing than I would have expected it would be. And yeah. it's hard to wrestle through those thoughts and what they mean. Like, for instance, my mom going, it was just, I mean, it's horrifically sad and shocking, all those things, but. There's some element of not to, that it's over and it's done and she lived great and then didn't anymore. And there's something about right. that that isn't terrible. And it's and I feel guilty about even feeling that or thinking that. And then and then when when our dog died recently, we put him down, and it seems so obvious that that was the right thing to do. And, yeah. and but it gets so much harder with the person. And I I don't know if you have anything to speak to about that and bringing a, a dog into the equation is weird, but there's something interesting about that. It's so easy and clear with a pet and not with a human because the capacity for suffering with humans more anyway. And I just, I, I'm really get lost thinking about those things. Well, we, we, and we've always taken care of our pets and we, we substitute judgment for them. And yet we're unwilling to do that because we haven't uh, had the discussions with our family members. Mm -hmm. And we, as we discussed before, people's opinions can change. So we, <clears throat> it's a moving target, but we attribute pets as having only one kind of intellectual plot line, which is when I'm ready to go, don't let me suffer mm -hmm. and put me down. So, but there are, there are more plot lines to uh, humans. Um, That's helpful. I, to, to I, I shouldn't get into well, I, I won't get into that. I'm sorry to hear about your mother. Uh, I think that there are many people who would say that a quick death is uh, preferable, and then there are others who mm -hmm. always want to fight on. And all three of the grandparents that my mom and dad have been taking care of, it's been, that's been, they were very healthy people all in their 90s, and but from 85 to 95, it wasn't great. I mean, that, like, that was, it wasn't, that wasn't great. Basically, right. it wasn't the worst, but that that was such a and I'm only speaking about that from I'm not even wanting to speak of their suffering or mental health. It was just average nursing home. You live an extra 10 years and that we all know what that looks like. But it was interesting when you say the plot line thing, there's more plot lines to consider. That's what I want to try to 
put in my brain really well right now because that's very helpful when it wouldn't be for a dog. But even thinking about the financial resources and what they would have wanted and the medical system and the work that, and the stress and the problems that my parents dealt with dealing with the grandparents. It's not like we should save everybody the trouble and just lights out everybody. I don't think that at all. <laughs> but those things are actual considerations. And then uh, the other thing you said that I find very useful to think about is maybe I've oversimplified the suffering thing in the way I'm thinking about it. Because, I mean, if you had a young kid that was sick, you would put it through any amount of suffering to give to give them a chance to have another Correct. 50 years. And that's totally Correct. different. And then the rubber really meets the road when you talk about with the, uh, and this is something I hadn't considered yet either. I'm trying to, I'm just going slow for myself because I really want to have good thoughts on this going forward. But uh, will the, in, the, you didn't say the word intervention, but when I think about medicine, I fundamentally am like, okay, I, I get the vibe that, it's intervention and every medicine is risky and every surgery has, you know, it's not good to do medical in interventions unless it is good to do it. And one of the things I didn't ever think of it from the point of view of not only would it fix, and you have to remind me how to say this, right? Fix the address, the issue and improve the quality of life going forward. How did you phrase that a minute ago? Yes. I, I believe that, a, that a, a treatment and intervention, I'm comfortable with that term should <clears throat> prolong life and improve the quality yes, of that. life at the same time. Otherwise, you're dealing with a zero-sum game. Yes. I, did, I hadn't uh, made that nuance connection yet that, of course, it makes sense to try. Then you can weigh the statistics of, oh, this has got a 70% likelihood of success. And if it succeeds, the life quality will increase. Correct. That's a big a, factor, yeah. A big factor because if the life quality doesn't improve but you or, get more days so, so yeah that's a different some people will say so what's the point and my father as an example i mentioned this aortic aneurysm repair when he was 88 <clears throat> well he had the he had the outpatient procedure that i recommended uh, and basically my sisters and i had sort of imposed on him by saying well dad uh, your eldest granddaughter is pregnant you will meet your first great grandchild mm -hmm. And subsequently, he met 12 more and uh, over the next five, six years. And, and yet, so he had three good years after that intervention. Mm -hmm. And then he started to decline from other reasons. Basically, he had what's called geriatric failure to thrive. He just got old mm -hmm. and tired. And he, he had no stamina. He couldn't, uh, he couldn't get out of the apartment for any length of time. And so he had three good years, one not so good year and one bad year when he was basically uh, bound, uh, bound to his apartment. He could only get out for an hour or two before he was exhausted and weak. And the, his mantra for that last year was, I have lived too long. And my, my you would point articulate is that interventions that at this advanced age, you get something and then you, you might get something you don't want as he did. He got two years, two bad years. So when his doctors uh, advised him about uh, three and a half years into the process that his aneurysm was growing again and that he needed to, to be re-repaired, have that procedure again, uh, at that point he said, no, uh, I will not have that done. I declined to have it done. He called his doctors. He canceled all his appointments, and uh, yet he lived another year and a half, during which time he was trying to find ways or talk about ways to um, quicken the, the hasten the dying process. Are there any good ways that you know of to cut? Well, first of all, I'm making an assumption here. I'm making an assumption that in the medical industry, and especially with malpractice and insurance and the business, all those factors there, I'm making the assumption that you're not always getting your doctor to explain to you the way somebody would explain to you something brass tacks off the record or in a different setting or what they really think when that is what you want to know. Is there any tips? Is there any way to cut through what a doctor's saying or what medical advice you're getting uh, that's, that's to get your best interest in mind a little bit more than to, uh, you know, avoiding litigation or these, you know, I, I always press yeah. doctors when I've had kids and I ask a million questions. I'm a very annoying uh, 
person to be in the hospital with. I asked the doctor delivering our baby a bunch of questions that she does not like. I, I, I keep thinking of different ways to say it because I don't ever feel like they're really shooting straight with me. And I understand why, but is there any effective ways to cut through that and get what you want, which is a real kind of answer or opinion sometimes, but the doctors seem to. You got to, you have to, you have to press, you have to press the agenda and uh, gently th- threaten going to see another doctor. So first of all, you want to have a doctor you trust. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to talk to your doctor. And if you can't and you're not, and your doctor won't talk prognosis with you and won't talk uh, factually about your illness, but only says, well, you know, we should give this a try. You should, there's a new treatment. Uh, you know, let's just give it a try. It might buy some time. These are euphemisms for we really don't have much to offer you. So um, that's when you either say, tell me how much time I do have, doctor, knowing that you can't predict it accurately, but give me the lowdown mm-hmm. or, I will, uh, or give me a consultation to a doctor who will discuss this with me. Lowdown is the word. That's what everybody wants. You're like, all right, what's, okay. I, I, I get all the official stuff. What's the lowdown here? That's what you want. Right. Yeah. Tell, and, me, tell me the truth. Tell me the lowdown. Um, and, and even, uh, I, and doctors should recognize too that they, uh, are, that they aren't accurate and they should understand their biases, but we should uh, be as accurate as possible. Mm-hmm. So when my, fa- when my mother was diagnosed with, um, Uh, lung cancer at age 82, her doctor said, well, you've got lung cancer at stage four. Uh, We should, we can consider this kind kind of treatment. You're not a good candidate for surgery, but I'm going to send you to an oncologist, a cancer specialist, and and hopefully they will uh, give you more information. So my mother went to the cancer specialist. They immediately launched into a discussion of chemotherapy and radiation. And my parents were basically 86 and 82 at the time, and they did not push the doctor very hard. I went to visit with them, and I sat down and talked prognosis with them, and I pointed out back then that the life expectancy, or I misspoke, the median life expectancy for somebody with stage four lung cancer at diagnosis was 10 months. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a fact. A fact, exactly, Mm -hmm. a number, you know. And, you know, my mother was sort of crushed. Uh, she uh, asked if she was going to die. I said, yes. Uh, I mean, we just don't know when. I said, uh, if mom, if there were 100 people in this apartment and they all had lung cancer like you do, it would be very crowded, but in 10 months, 50 of them would be gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just a way of trying to illustrate what I mean by median life expectancy, but I also knew that at age 82, and this is a point I try and make in the book, that elderly people don't have a harder time getting to the median. The likelihood my mother at 82 would be the one who got to 10 months was less than the man diagnosed at the same time down the hall who was 50 with lung cancer. Yeah, he's more likely to make it to the 10 month or the 12 month or the 14 month mark. So, Yes, go ahead. So I immediately changed the equation for my mother, and she was able to adjust. Fortunately, she was sensible. But her doctors could have done the same thing and and would have given her a more educated understanding of whether or not she wanted to go through chemotherapy. Well, that's exactly the type of of what I'm talking about. And I don't – I'm a little lost on why it doesn't go that way or if it's just me. But I think probabilities and numbers and percentages are very helpful in in that environment. And it's like you say you changed the equation, but you basically gave her an equation to work with that she didn't have before. I mean, she might have known something from her doctor, but that's the exact kind of thing. And and again, this had to do with end of life. But if I'm dealing with something when, when my kids is born and they say, do you want this test or this thing that they do? And I don't know what it is. I, I don't know how to answer that question unless you could, they could give me some data, which they don't seem to readily do, which is shocking. you know. And even data I would take would be like, Okay, well, I don't have an opinion on it. What What do you think? And they don't want to give opinion. I say, this is what I always try to ask them. I say, what percentage of your patients choose yes and what percentage choose no? That's a number, and it would be helpful to me to know that 80% of people do this or not. That doesn't, right. you know, anything that you can kind of turn into a, a tangible number or a percentage or a prognosis, you know, all those things, yeah. it's just very helpful. And I'm astonished that 
it's it's not as common as you would think. Is what's the reason for that? Uh, it takes why, too much time so to try and explain it. Doctors yeah. think, uh, I think, inaccurately that patients uh, don't understand percentages or yeah. uh, or median survival, and they don't want to take the time to explain it. They also deal in relative numbers without dealing in absolute numbers. Mm-hmm. So if, if, the, if they say a procedure is uh, going to, oh, Mr. So-and-so, you have to proceed with this treatment for your heart because it will cut your chance of dying in the next year by 50%, uh, people will say, wow, 50% reduction in death, I, should, I obviously have to have it. But if the absolute number was, let's say, 100 people have this condition, and without the procedure, uh, four of them die, and with the procedure, two of them die, you've reduced yes. it by 50%. Yes. But in fact, uh, from an absolute value, you've, you've put 90-plus th- people through a procedure that's not going to help them. Yeah, because so, everybody takes the 50%, but it's all, it only helps two out of 100, and the rest of, the rest of them it had hurt, meanwhile. And, and people aren't good with numbers, you're right. So that, that's probably the reason. Because if you had a numerical approach, they would get in all kind of jams yeah, but, from misunderstanding the math. And young people might say, okay, going from four to two is a good is, mm. is the best I can shoot for. I'll give it a shot because I'm young. But elderly patients look at that reduction from four and 100 to two and 100, and they say, you know what? I'm yeah. just going to yeah. – I'd rather go home yeah. <laughs> and see my family. And then when you make that transition, you go from whatever's normal care to palliative care? Do you have a definition for that? Um, I find a lot of people aren't even familiar with that term, palliative, if well, I'm saying it right. Palli- palli- yeah, palliative care is when you cho- choose to treat symptoms alone without trying to treat a diagnosis for a cure. Now, all hospice care is palliative, but mm-hmm. not all palliative care is, is hospice care. So you can go from um, a patient with cancer and chemotherapy to see a consultation with a palliative care doctor because they will help control your symptoms. But when the end is uh, approaching and you decide not to have any more chemotherapy, then you would probably move to hospice care with and the, and undertake exclusively palliative treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, in some jurisdictions it's very, and circumstances, it's hard to, to aggressively treat people and to palliate them. But in most circumstances, we can do that. And then once a patient is a candidate for and is admitted to hospice care, then it's exclusively palliative care plus what, what the other things that hospice has to offer, meaning emotional support, spiritual support, medical supplies, and uh, other things. Mm-hmm. So what do you recommend... Or how do you recommend thinking about stuff like living wills and do not resuscitate and the technical stuff there, even at a you know young age, somebody like me is almost forty or something. Do you have do you have is it does that play in here in a way that you have ways to think well, about it that? It definitely does. Everybody, every adult, especially one who's mar- I mean, every adult married uh, with children should have a living will, mm-hmm. which uh, addresses in broad generalities what they would like done toward the end of life or at the end of life when they cannot speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Those are the written uh, uh, wishes. But when, but in reality, uh, written wishes usually s- simply support verbal wishes toward the end of life. When If a person uh, has an emergency at the end toward, and um, has to rush to the hospital, people don't uh, go through the living will they start treating a patient unless a friend or relative is with the patient to explain right. what the living will says. And if the patient fills out a living will at age 40 and at age 50 uh, has an emergency uh, and has changed their mind, uh, suppose a car right. accident and yeah. before the brain damage sets in, they say, please keep me alive at all costs. Then that uh, that um, will negate the will. That negates the living will uh, exactly. So uh, it's it's a it's a 
plastic kind of system and sometimes living wills get overlooked and yeah that's uh, crazy that's a funny i would say funny but that's just a i don't know another word for it just that notion that you could because you think of contracts and written stuff as so binding of course but you could literally be in a situation where the person's telling you well according to your document i've got i'm not going to help you You go, no please do though and you're sorry you can't <laughs> like that's right. that's well, weird you don't think of that 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 could even be a obviously it wouldn't negate it if you were sitting there telling the person please help me you know yeah. The last living, the last verbal uh, directive is is what people have to go with, uh, is the standard of care. And living wills come in different forms. So at a, at age forty, a person should have a living will for the, you know, the unfortunate kind of motor vehicle mm-hmm. accident that leaves causes brain damage. And what does that person want? But at age 60, uh, a patient should refine the living will. I mean, I'm choosing arbitrary ages here. They should be more detailed when they have a diagnosis, like uh, I have a little high blood pressure. Well, that raises my risk of Mm -hmm. heart disease. I should be talking to my kids about heart disease and trying to put a detail into that about the living will. And, And then as I approach 70 or 75 and I have to deal with a new chronic illness, I, I should have some detail about that. Mm-hmm. And then when I get frail, meaning I'm so old that I can't take care of myself or get myself up the, off the floor without help, uh, then I should be talking to pay my uh, family about whether I want to go become a do not resuscitate patient. That's another level mm-hmm. of advanced directive. And then there are things called pulsed orders. These are uh, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment which are actually uh, orders that I've set. I, I sit down with my doctor and we write out a document uh, before I go into a nursing home, let's say, that says in the event I have a catastrophe in the nursing home and I'm carried to the hospital, do not put me on a breathing machine, do not put in a feeding tube. Those are orders that uh, the emergency room doctors have to follow uh, be, if, if that paper gets to the hospital can with can me. A- Whereas if the if the living wills if, if the living will says don't uh, use heroic measures that requires interpretation but the post orders are orders that don't require interpretation and the, a family member thing? can't override either uh, no the family member can in general cannot override that. Mm-hmm. or you have to get in some kind of battle I imagine if that happens from time to time but are the um, on the when you do a living will, if you just did it through a regular website or something, is there a ton of research one needs to do, or do you find that the questions that it asks you on Legal Zoom or whatever process would be standard that they give you a good like? Does that is a good primer to just go answer those questions, or is there some other? I don't. Yeah, I think most people who, if you're securing a living will through, you said you're in Washington State, right? Mm-hmm. You could probably go to the state of Washington Department of Health and Human Services, and there would be a living will to download, and if you, which you could look at. And then if you wanted to think about it, uh, I would recommend that people go to something called the Five Wishes. The Five Wishes is a kind of generic, it, it, it becomes a living will, but it's a, it's a document that asks a variety of questions and promotes thinking that can be translated into a living will which you can either use the five wishes form or use the same thinking when you're addressing mm-hmm. the Washington state form, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I would say that I understand a little bit more uh, now from my experience is the, and I think this is the theme of the things you're saying, but there's so many things that you can do now that will, it's so crazy how they'll, they'll matter later and they're difficult to think about now, but that's, you know, it's just part of, you know, being a human responsibly, there's decisions you can make now that will later on actually buy you real quality time and self-assurance and confidence and uh, reduce regret. Like you can do those things by being engaged now and having some harder conversations than you'd like to have and filling out some paperwork that you wouldn't want to do and making your wish, you know, whatever those things that feel vulnerable and comfortable or scary now, they really will probably translate or with some statistical regularity to a real quality things that will matter to you in a time that you don't want to be scrambling. Correct. And they will also matter to your family mm-hmm. in the sense you will be decreasing your family's burden yes, yes. on them, A, uh, the decision-making burden in particular, because your family, 
will be worried about you or their loved one. And we don't want that. We want our family to know what we want them to do for us, for our own selves, but also to decrease the burden on them. Mm -hmm. And even after they're gone, the amount of stuff that's in the dadgum wheels and changing the names on and people's intentions, that is so frustrating. Like, you know, the amount of stuff that you had to deal with then at the time when you think, we shouldn't have to deal with this right now. This is a time you don't want to have to deal with calling the phone company and doing this and going to the uh, the probate court and all these things. It's a disaster. And you can you can avoid them, you know, um, by thinking Planning about it now. But you have to be willing to, you know, ponder your death. <laughs> yeah. You have to be willing to plan and yeah. ponder. Yeah. Maybe meditation or something like that. I don't know. I've, I've heard of that before, you know. But and there's just certain people I know that well, my wife is kind of that way. Like she doesn't want to think about it. You know, I, I'm I'm very comfortable thinking about it now, which I'm happy about. Like I feel some positivity about it that I always thought I would hate to think about or wouldn't like it. But it's it, I I really do think it's okay and comfortable and almost there's a bond there's some something about it that's bonding to be able to talk with your family about deep things. That sounds silly. It's probably obvious to a lot of people, but hadn't been as obvious to me as it is now. So. But thank you for helping me think through this. Is there other stuff that you recommend to people or just general pointers or tips or things that you think that they should do? I'd say the main one would be check out your book. But well, check out my book. Uh, if, if they want to contact me or communicate with me, they can check out my website, samharrington.com, S-A-M-H-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N.com. But uh, I would like to make one big general point, 80 percent of elderly patients when canvassed by uh, medical experts express a preference to die at home and 60 percent of elderly patients die in hospitals Mm -hmm. or nursing homes and my point the whole point of the book is that if you want to die at home it is fundamental to have be willing to say no to medical care to say no to aggressive treatments And, uh, for example, President Bush has gone into the hospital for an infection. Well, he's risking dying in the hospital by doing that uh, because uh, things can spin out of control in a hospital. So, back to my point, it's fundamental that if you want to die at home, you have to say no to hospitalization. And my book is all about finding the spot in your life in the trajectory of your illness at an advanced age when it is appropriate to make that decision and choose palliative care and subsequently hospice care. That's that's well put. I, I really want to thank you for spending time with me to let me think and ask a couple of questions and get in here. And that you, you know, you, your your story and your dad and your personal experiences are obviously a big part of that. And I am very big on humans sharing their personal experiences because they're a lot easier for people to take lessons from than the math and statistics and the businesses of hospitals and all this stuff like that. So real people sharing their story, their that narrative part of it is is I think very helpful and hopefully it helps a lot of people. Well, I appreciate the opportunity because that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you very much. Well, good luck to you. And uh, I'll, uh, we appreciate it. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.